Hello, Tim. Well, hello, Ryan. And a happy Easter to you too, Tim. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> happy Zombie Jesus Day. I know you love bunny rabbits and have like 53 mm-hmm. little bunny rabbits near and dear to oh, you running around your place. I'm wearing a Easter bunny outfit right now. <laughs> it's adorable. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And uh, happy about a week and a half, two weeks from Easter to you listening if you're listening to this live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and happy uh, happy future Easter if you just happen to be listening to this on some Easter in the future when we're here or long gone 400 years into the future. You know, every moment from tomorrow on, they'll be expecting a future Easter. What? Yep. Think about it. I'm not. All right. And (laughs) welcome, as I said, wherever this may find you, whenever this may find you, to Dismembering Horror, the podcast show where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Maslin. Kim <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, what we do, what do we do here? Well, we do, we dismember a horror film every week. But what does it mean to dismember a horror film? Well, let's see. Let's see about that. We talk about it, as we said. We break it down. We discuss it. We 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 chop it up into pieces to better inspect it. And then, and then put it all back together in the end, hopefully coming out for the better at the end of it. And we're very happy to have you here for all that. We wish you could, we could hear you, but we can't. But just know you're here in spirit, and we thank you for being here with us. You know what I think would be fun to do someday is have a um, what's that new what's that new thing? Um, it's a it's a like a forum talking forum app clubhouse yeah what if we after (laughs) after an episode drops like the day after an episode drops we did a post episode clubhouse where we got to talk to other people about the episode oh just hear what everyone else thought yeah Yeah. that'd be fun yeah i think we should try it someday cool well we'll hope to (laughs) we'll hope to see you there then uh (laughs) Great. Well, what are we doing in the meantime? Why didn't say what episode are we on? What episode are we on? We're just getting up there. We're on 138. Ooh. And for episode 138, we're talking about Night of the Demon from 1957, directed by Jacques Tournier. Screenplay by Charles Bennett and Hal E. Chester, who also, I believe, produced it. That's a uh, that's quite a name. Which one? Hal E. Chester. It's quite a character too, presumably. Really? <laughs> I, I watched. I like watched the first minute of an interview with him from the '90s, and didn't watch much more than that. But the lead, Dana Andrews, as we'll get into, was not crazy about old Hal. I, is that the dude? Yeah. He. Um. I don't think he was very crazy about being in this movie. We'll talk about it. But man, did he have a sour puss. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, great. Well, to talk about it, we got to move along here. And I think we do that by starting with the trailer. Are you ready for that, Tim? Yeah, man. I'll tell you what. I'm so ready the dog upstairs is barking. <laughs> great. All right. Here we go again from 1957, Night of the Demon. It has been written since the beginning of time that evil supernatural creatures exist in a world of darkness. And it is also said, man can call forth these powers of darkness, the demons of hell. It is the night of the demon. And tonight is the night that Dana Andrews, as a daring scientist, defies the mysterious murderous devil cult in a desperate battle against the demons of hell. Oh, why did you drop the poker? Red hot. Didn't you know? Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. He has been chosen. I've been chosen for what? What do you mean? Today I found all the pages of my desk calendar torn out after October the 22nd. I know why. He died on the 22nd. Well, all right, Tim. There Masterpiece was... of macabre magic. Macabre. Also known as Curse of the Demon, originally released here in the U.S., but we're going with Night of the Demon as it is more known. Anyways, mm. Tim, mm-hmm. per, I would sincerely love to know, per our rating system, <laughs> would you, Tim, tell Tim to avoid it, stream it, rent it, or buy it? It's um, I'm I'm gonna be a rent, but it it was hurt by um by our old pal Dana. Wow, I, I really he really pissed me off. Um, but most mostly, I think it's pretty good. I, I'm not a buy. It, it, I got you know it kind of drones on at times of just like those kind of two people in a room scenes that I am like, all right, I get it, but let's go. Um. So mostly, yeah. I mean, there's really good stuff in it. So yeah. it, it's a rent. <sighs> I know you, it, this is your favorite movie of all time now. So kind of. No, <laughs> no it's not as up there as some of them that we've watched, but boy, I did really love it. Um, I'm curious to get more of your thoughts on Dana Andrews as Dr. John Holden, which we will, but he, he personified for me that like the stuffy guy who takes the whole movie to change his mind. It's exactly what you want. You know, I, I agree. He's doing that thing. Well, yeah, but Uh, man, I just, it's hard for me to stay in a thing when I dislike the lead that much. Funny. Cool. I don't know, Tim. I guess I'll just say <laughs> <laughs> real life or death here. I know. I don't know. I just want it. It's like uh, I would buy it, I guess. <laughs> but I feel like I'd tell I my, I, I don't know. I'm just going to say rent it for now. All right. But like a way high rent it, you know? Cool. cool. It was so good, Tim. It was so cool. I'm sorry that guy didn't kind of ruined it for you. Ah, That's too bad. 
Great. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get into it. I think he reminds it. me of somebody. I think he honestly reminds me of a boss I used to have. <laughs> and it and it made me not want to. Like, I kept not wanting to watch him. Wow. I kept just being like, I hate you. Wow. So, I mean, that, I mean. Not the fault of the movie. That, that doesn't necessarily not work for I guess if you literally don't want to be watching them on screen no matter what but <laughs> yeah that's kind of what was happening okay well fair I enough I like everybody else I love everyone else in this it was so good I do want to buy it but I don't know it's just too soon it's too soon I can't commit to <laughs> all right well let's let's talk about what happened in this and try to give it a little summary say what exactly went down on the night of the demon <laughs> wow well <laughs> there's pagans and other stuff but let's just say for the sake of ease you've got british isle pagans and they believe in demons and stuff and they they use runes wait but you're you're setting this up like oh okay i'm picturing this like pagan cult they're ne- you you don't actually see them ever right we just get their illustrious no. leader no who- but it's established that they are the undercurrent. I don't mean that they exist current, like in contemporary times. I'm saying that historically they're there. Okay. And they, you know, that's sort of what this, the, the demon revolves around or the curse of the demon revolves around that, that back history. Just to make it clear, we neither start with nor end up with an on-screen group of pagans or Maybe, devil worshippers yeah, at any time. That's unfortunate. That would have been fun. Um, but we do, you know, we get a nice shot of uh, Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> which is fun. And and so you've got the first doctor who god man this the beginning was a little little confusing and convoluted to me but basically this first doctor has uh kind of outed this other guy who's also a doctor. <laughs> um and like gotten him into this controversial sort of public controversy over like what he's doing and whether or not it's he's a bad dude. And and then uh, shockingly, that first doctor meets an end uh, at the hand of a very intense demon that comes out of the woods. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it is so cool looking. <laughs> So what we learn is that <clears throat> this doctor, the guy who died, his kind of like colleague apprentice dude who's from the States is coming over to give a talk. Um, and God, let's see. how. What's the best way of saying this? Well, obviously he comes over and his the, the doctor is dead, so he wants to figure out why. And that sets him on this pathway to – the mix between the lore of like pagan paranormal s- magic stuff that he is a firm skeptic of and i mean skeptic in not the way we look at a skeptic but in the f- other way which is he doesn't believe any of it's real um but he recruits sort of the niece of the doctor and she's kind of a believer She's kind of also on the trail. There's no recruitment. She almost more that's recru- true, yeah. recruits him, you know. Yeah. And so they kind of, you know, they try to unfold the mystery of like what was really going on. And they realize 
that this this other guy, what's the bad guy's name? <laughs> the bad guy, Dr. Julian Coswell. 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 Yeah, so so that dude who's so cool, they figure he's he's being all weird and black magic-y and freaky and you know the the main guy, the lead guy, Her- uh no, let's get Holden. these names right. Holden, right? Yeah. So Holden is all like, ah, it's just he's just j- jerking us around. He's just a jerk. Um, but they figure out that. Oh, and Carswell curses him. He says, you're going to die gonna, on this night. I was going to say, meanwhile, we have a whole ticking clock. Right. Maybe with a question mark element going right. on. And so they go down this sort of fun mystery. Let's figure out what's really going on thing only to find that. A curse can be passed to somebody through these runic symbols on a piece of parchment if you willingly accept them, if you if it's they're handed to you and you accept it, which becomes the key to the whole sort of story in the end. Um, but ultimately drag me from hell, I thought of. Yes, yes. Ultimately, they, you know, they kind of <laughs> well, I mean, uh Holden sees the demon in the woods literally sees the demon in the woods he is attacked by a demon leopard he like he gets all sorts of things that you would think could should confirm his belief in it that some supernatural stuff is happening and he still is like nah he's just jerking us around well, when he sees it in the woods he only ever sees it in its uh, smoke fireball form, it doesn't fully. I guess that's get true. Released. Okay, that's fair. So as he says it, he's like, he set up some some light sh- and smoke show for me, and I can't <laughs> believe right. I fell for it. Yeah. So knowing all of this, and knowing that, like, or still kind of believing that this is all BS, he still slips the bad doctor the runic symbols. Um, in the end, which then you know, transfer the curse onto him. And then the demon shows up and kills him in a train yard. So Holden's a murderer. That's the conclusion I came to. Great. And with that conclusion, we can move (laughs) on to our first (laughs) section. I think that covers it all. Here we go. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm. What worked? What worked? So much worked, Tim. I agree. So much. You know the what my favorite part of this whole movie is? Aspect or part, like scene? Scene. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Was it um, so many good ones? Was it the the when he summoned the wind? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's the best part for me. And I'd say it was a full... One thing that was so cool about it, it was a full sequence. Yeah. Like it was really this neat little chapter or section of the film. I love that part so much. What did you love about it? I just think, you know, the whole idea of him being like, <laughs> let me <laughs> cast this spell and see if you're, I can make you a believer. And and then it just gets stormy and windy. And it's so windy. And it's, it's so windy. And everybody's freaking out. It's the perfect way for him to sort of test his magic to the skeptic in the traditional sense like Holden because 
it's just weather. You can always say, oh, it's just a freak weather occurrence. It's just a freak yeah. weather occurrence. And there's something <laughs> here. This this actually, this scene is a perfect like way to also talk about one of my favorite aspects of the whole film, which was Dr. Carswell and the performance by Neil McKinnon's. Anyway, just great, great, fun, bad guy character. Like, Anytime you can have scenes like that scene where it's almost like the like Bond talking to the Bond villain like earlier yeah. on the movie when yep. they meet, where it's like, yeah, you have the bad guy, the good guy, if you want to put it that way, um, c- conversing their themes, feeling each other out. Like, you know, they aren't an all-out immediate physical threat. They, they, they've got, their, their motives are complicated. They're complicated. Just all that we learn about him in that scene is just does so much for his character too. He oh, puts yeah. on annual uh, annual uh, clown shows, magic shows yep. for kids. Uh, he lives on this massive estate with his mother. He <laughs> acknowledges the the kind his interest in in witchcraft and and all the occult and all that. And uh, yeah, just a just conflicted, interesting character that makes you. Um, Oh, it makes you sympathize with him just enough in a, a weird way too. Yeah, and he also that's the scene where he sets the curse. Yeah, right. Where, well, I'm sorry. He's he 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 is he's already slipped holding the runes uh in the library, but in this scene he declares Holden's uh imminent death. He says on the 28th he'll die. Right, right. In that scene. He also is doing I think this is a really fun and and like smart directorial thing um having him in this basically clown makeup and he does most of the scene in the makeup like leading up to the wind uh he's still in the makeup he's got a fake nose you know big rubber nose on like round clown nose and he's got like that grease paint style mouth on him and some eye stuff and then they they run inside after he summons the wind and and they start talking and he then takes slowly removes the makeup throughout the scene and right. once he's finally got it off of him then he sets the curse I, th- I think that's right and um but this idea of the like the clown the clown aesthetic being removed is so I just find it to be so cool. I mean, read into it what you want. There's just something really pleasant about the idea of this like thing that's supposed to entertain kids being slowly removed to kind of reveal his, you know, malevolence. Right. Well, there's something really fiendish at play. Indeed, malevolence is a good word for it. And again, I'll put this in the context too of combining traits where we feel sympathy for him in a weird way because of like, it's this kind of, I don't know, maybe this is our culture, you know, probably is more, but kind of feels sad. He's just like living alone with his mother kind of thing. But we also see like how much he loves her and he's good to her too. So there's that. And then where, where I'm getting to is they, it's, it's, we see he actually cares for these kids and putting on a show mm-hmm. and it's like a good cause. But then like, you know, uh, something a bit more sudden than removing the clown makeup is summoning that windstorm, sending the kids screaming in terror right. from all the furniture. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very forceful windstorm he summons. So, like, <laughs> the fact that he does that to the kids just sort of, like, 
just like the flip of a coin, you know, doing that right after entertaining them. There's yeah. something really just like, ugh, like this is a hurt, hurt man right here. You know, it, it gets to you. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I like how at the at the top of that when he's introduced to um, essentially, well, he's met Holden already, but he's introduced to Miss Harrington. Joanna. Um, and he's, he asked his mom to come over and his mom is like, oh, you're not married, are you? My son's not married either. <laughs> it's very yeah. like, oh, mom, come on. Don't <laughs> yeah. embarrass me in front of my new friends. <laughs> and it's, meanwhile, he's just all caught up in this intense witchcraft and like, like yeah. harnessing powers beyond his control. And ooh. Well, and I think that at the end of the day, it, it's – He's not actually evil, and I, I don't find him to be actually evil. He's simply protecting his beliefs, right? Because both, you know, the the you know the the uncle of Joanna, who's yeah, the one Professor who gets killed at the beginning. Sorry, I called him Doctor <laughs> Professor Harrington, who dies at the beginning, was basically on uh, a Carswell's trail. He was going to expose him in That's some right. sense. And then, it's so presumably, evil. yeah, Holden's going to expose him too. So he's just defending his what he knows, basically, in his life. You know, like, I think this is as a as a Satanist at heart. <laughs> I am I am offended at the depiction <laughs> of this. That just because the guy believes in some pagan stuff does not make him evil. Okay. And you're yeah. going to go drag him through the mud and maybe get him thrown in jail because the, you know, the Christian believers can't handle something different than what they believe in. Right. How dare they? <laughs> That's why I didn't like this movie. No, I did like the movie. <laughs> That's why I didn't like Holden. He sucks. <laughs> Anything else from uh, this extended sequence you wanted to highlight? Man, the wind. like that. Just the way they kind of stand in the wind for like a really long time and like have this weird pan like he's not panicking, Carswell isn't, but like you know, Holden is like, oh, 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 and then they cut to the kids and Joanna like flipping out. <laughs> like it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Everything about it is just exciting. I kept thinking, like, damn, they must have gotten some big fans for that that scene. They're just their their exchange is great too. Just that little thing on snakes and ladders, and oh, explaining yeah. the rules to yeah. it. And, uh, it's good. Did you it's, play? Did you play any versions of that growing up? I played shoots and ladders at my grandma's. Yeah, that's what yeah. I too. Yeah, I, I never, it. I'd never known it as snakes and ladders. I've heard, I've heard or seen it as that somewhere along the line. It but, was actually yeah. I hadn't thought about the game in a long time and then looking at the board and seeing the kids playing it oh wait what is the thing he says he's like i actually preferred the snakes growing up it was more fun to slide down than to climb <laughs> yeah. up that's a good satanist uh, sentiment but uh, also no kidding it's always more fun to slide down even <laughs> right. though it's against the like the goal of the game he sort of see to me i relate i'm like yeah the game is stupid why would you need to get to the top when you can just slide i if if for nothing else but to have fun sliding down. Well, that's what I just got a little like it felt good in a horror movie to insert that game is what I thought. Like you said oh, it's yeah. like the way you said it's stupid, it can also 
it's kind of horrifying in a certain context too of like <laughs> what is it distills like that what is a game down mm. to like its its essence in a way where it's like it's completely up to chance in this case right. there's zero strategy and you're either like at the at the roll of a die or spinning of the wheel having yeah. to go backwards or get to go up and it's just like completely at the whim of chance and there's something it's, it's it's like what is the th- like i, I get it but it's i it's love it like, as a metaphor for like heaven and hell too yeah yeah it's so great which all we know is a is a metaphor for how we are feeling at any given moment too yeah yeah it's cool what well, else for you what what was your big favorite scene God, I mean, that, you know, as a, a sequence, I think, was my favorite. But I got to, if I want to shout out a next one here, it's probably, probably have to be the seance scene. Yeah. That was, it was, it was the, I can't think of a better seance scene I've seen. It, it really had everything, Tim, mm-hmm. for me. You had the, the, the all out, uh, supernatural hater with our quote-unquote hero Holden going into it and it's like from the get-go you know it's something it's they aren't doing anything to sort of help their case to get him believe in it they're they start by singing a song which is like (laughs) this very like it's like a high timbered uh as they say it sort of helps welcome or that the the spirits like it or whatever so that was a cool just kind of it was just, it was like one of those things that like you could laugh at it, but it was also just weird, you know, oh, yeah. but also, I don't know. It felt like the kind of detail that maybe they do in real life with those things that just, okay, we're just watching it here. But and I love how they just like, they just start right in on it, right? Like they've barely even sat down and the women are like, hi, hi, hi. yeah, well, the lights off are, 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 are lights are already off at that point. So that's. So we're already off to the races, really. <laughs> and then to have... <laughs> I mean, that was already great, but that was just, just the beginning. Because then the guy who's who's the medium, like, it's it's on his performance level that is so good. But then yeah. it's also just like... <laughs> it's so eerie and weird how it happens because they do such a good job of like dubbing in these voices, including like a little kid's voice, I think that sets really us is off. Quite unsettling. In yeah, it's super unsettling. <laughs> exactly. And it goes on to do all these other different voices. And that combined with his it just seems like such an authentic, deep performance, what he's doing there. Sorry, I think that me. scene in a way pissed me off. Because I was like, man, Holden does not even give a second chance or like of this being a possible really. He's like right up and out of there. He's like, this is bullshit. Well, it's it's, ah, it's stupid. Oh, it's just an act. Ah, the, we're out right. of here. <laughs> What's, and it was, was so frustrating in that, I don't know, because in the moment, the actors who are all the committed characters doing the seance like you don't doubt that they're doing it for real at all. There's something, it's like, it's so hard to buy into it being faked when you're watching it in this movie. It's just yeah. so casually just just steps into what looks like a real seance, which I don't have, I don't think I've seen committed to film like this. It was really incredible. Yeah, it's cool. 
and then and then like you said we do get that frustration too because we're so caught up in watching them do it when he flips on the light switch and they're like oh no it's bad to, you don't want to bring someone out of a trance right away and we see he kind of like gets out of it the medium and yeah you know getting a, a little dizzy spell or something so so then just that that fun frustrating thing of at the end of all that holden's just like pfft Poppy, you know. Oh man, the way that he grabs Joanna's arm and yanks her out of there. Ooh, it made me so mad. Yeah, yeah. You suck. Right. Just let her tell you what to do. Supposed to like him? I didn't think so. Not at all. Because I didn't like him. As I've said now ten times. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought he was funny in his own just stuck in his ways way, like. Yeah. Like in that, I wouldn't go as far as to say like there's a, a charm to it, but it was like, mm-hmm. I, I, I get you, dude. You're being ridiculous, but like, whatever. <laughs> you're like, well, you're. Okay. I, um, is this a thing that didn't work though? Ooh, yeah, I'm going to hold on to this one. Okay. Uh, well, great. Seance scene. Great, great, great. I like, um, I like at the very end of this <laughs> seance scene when like, the mom is running after them and gets like completely stopped by her son opening a car door and blocking her way. And he's like, come with me, mother. <laughs> right. <laughs> and she just sort of like stops and gets pulled into a car. Oh, okay, son. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not not a specific scene, though. You could, uh, you could definitely allude to specific scenes within this. Is just the whole something that you, is usually your favorite part in these types of movies, Tim, and I'm just kind of like, whatever, along for the ride. But I really got into and had fun with the the mystery stuff in this one, the procedural questing sure. that happens. Like, it, was, it wasn't too much or too little. I, it wasn't so convoluted, like, as far as, let's say, The Haunting of Julia we just watched. Right. It wasn't, the story wasn't so dependent on it, like a lot of the giallos that we watch where I just kind of lose track and then I'm lost the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that it was straight up rooted in like old books and um, a guy who has turned catatonic. You know, those those are the sort of main linchpins of the mystery. And those cool stuff. Yes. I think that that whole... What would you call that scene? The hypnosis scene, I guess you would call it, right? Yeah. Yeah. That scene and the uh, the discovery of the runes in his coat, that, mm-hmm. that it's been slipped to him, and the cop describing all of the different versions of the demon in other cultures. Yeah. Those three scenes are like, prime time mystery stuff now i have thoughts about them that that i think are on the side of what didn't work but not actually about the scenes themselves like the content of the scenes is so good and so like critical to this type of story working because it's like you know you're peeling the onion back you're getting these sort of deeper layers of what's going on and it's i just it's lore basically which I love. Yeah. Lore. It's <laughs> a good yeah. word for it all. And that lore is perfectly set up with our intro of, to this film. It's the, the Wayhead mm-hmm. Stone <laughs> Edge. 
I have a great Stonehenge story for uh, things of note. Great. <laughs> Hold well, on to your butts. I loved the storytelling that was happening with it. And I mean that in the sense of like literal voiceover happening yeah. over it. God, it was, <laughs> I just loved it. It was great. Yeah. Talking about ancient powers and witchcraft just to set us off. And then we're yeah. on to Joe Schmo, whatever, on the plane ride over. It was great. Yeah, but man, I mean, talk about just diving right in too. <laughs> With the demon. <laughs> Whoa. First of all, the effect is incredibly good. Right? Well, I was like, whoa, what are they? How are they? I mean, I, I know how they're doing it, but it looks so good. Well, there was, I kind of went on a journey with it. It's it's It was like working in ways and then working in other ways as it went on kind of thing. Where it was, I mean, yeah, it's just kind of great, like you said, where it's just right off the bat we get, oh, there it is. And I think what I said to you when I handed the movie off, it would have been fun to watch it with you, was all that demon stuff was just so cool <laughs> and so fun. Yeah. But the way it, it starts off where we get the the sounds of it, where it's just like this, you know, it's weird. It's almost kind of like sci-fi, tinny, yeah. like, yeah, I don't know, otherworldly sound. But yeah, I don't know how they were doing it as far as this, like, the the first little smoke circles that appear. And uh, yeah, like sparkler lights. Yeah, it, it looked so eerie. And then when we first get its outline coming out of that. Man. It's just coming at us out of the forest. I'm like, wow, this is it's sincerely eerie. This yeah. is so cool how they pull it off. So it was working for me in that sense. And then it went on and we <laughs> full on like see the demon. Like it's not just the little obscured kind of just outline of it or whatever. And it went from being like, oh, this is eerie and scary to this is just super cool this is just yeah. awesome like the way it looks where it's it's transparent in just that little bit mm-hmm. like they fully have all these different inserts of it so we sort of get its limbs moving and just the close-up <laughs> of its face and just moving its mouth it was just so fun i just oh, it was great and just yeah, I, I mean, there's there's that specifically. And then just the effect that it had for the rest of the movie, which it's not controversial, but it like a lot of the people involved or, you know, some, some of the fans of it kind of like are take it or leave it with either seeing it all or how much they're seeing it. And for me, I'm just kind of like, it is what it is and I love it for what it is. And versus the whole sort of like in... Turn, we, we we should have mentioned up front. We've this is our second Jacques Tournier directed film. We also did Cat People, but like Cat People, where it's just all really left up to the imagination. Mm-hmm. This had an it was interesting. It almost had its cake and ate it too. Yeah, because like it was so much so up front. So it's like the stakes were there, you know, throughout. Well, and like it's we know it's going to come back at the end, but it doesn't until the way end. So right, I think that's just it. Is saying, here's the thing. Now spend the rest of the movie waiting for the thing to show up again. Yeah, really interesting. You don't I see like that, that happen a lot. a lot. Yeah, and it yeah, it just made it so. Maybe that's where for me it was some of the fun frustration 
on uh, on Holden, where it's like we know it's real, we saw it, and um, rather than sort of having that safety of being able to identify with him and oh maybe this excuse me isn't all real, no, we're just waiting the whole movie for him to catch up. What was that movie we watched? The other British. Well, we've watched a couple British ones. Um, the one with the house on the cliff. The Innocence? Mm, or The Uninvited? The Uninvited, that's it. Yeah. I think that there's something about this era of British horror that is really set... It's it's a different thing. Yeah, they're 13 years apart. That was 44. Wow, it was that early. Man, that is crazy. But like the remember the effects in that were also like incredible. It's like yeah. they're not messing around. Like they they were like let's. I think what it is is that there are, I in U.S. films of that general era, especially genre films. I think that there was a risk at times that the the filmmakers didn't that they were okay with it being a little dorky or hokey looking like they were okay with it. And, and you know, I'm kind of, this is editorializing, but it feels a little bit like they were like, yeah, it's a genre film. Like doesn't have to be perfect. Whereas with the British ones of the same ilk, i really feel like they're taking it more serious in terms of like things like the effects. Right. Like that actually, you just reminded me like, um, what was one of our favorites? We, we both said by it was actually the British film. It was made in Canada, the sci-fi yes. film. The, yeah, what is that the, called? Th- um, cr- oh, shit. What is it called? Oh, my God. <laughs> the um, little brain people. The, yeah, the man without a face. No, something Fiend. about. Fiend without uh, a face. D- oh, yeah. The fiend without a face. Fiend without a face. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, you're right. And some. Uh, I don't know if this is. Maybe this is uh, more behind the scenes what worked for me, but I, no, it, it ends up there in the end. But that like British approach to filmmaking as a whole, where you get the sense of like, you know, it's as much as I identify with and like to glorify, like, you know, I just recommend Deaded Easy Rider, the kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, the America, oh, we're gonna, gonna just cowboy in there and, and get it done and it's gonna be great gonna blob it up you know um any way <laughs> yeah. we can i i also just as much like and respect the british sensibility of you show up at your proper work hours and get in and do a fine right. job and do your do your damnedest you know so but the, what what especially i enjoy about that is is when it's done with films that are with something like special effects or films that are especially out there, or just like the idea of that, that British whateverness applied to making a demon creature. It just, it makes me so happy, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I always like that kind of like one of my, my, I don't know what you'd call it, but something I like to so like taking silly seriously or, you know, right. in this case, taking scary seriously. It just, it makes me so happy. And it looked great, the end result. And actually, you know, you mentioned like the effect in um, The Uninvited, how the the the, the wispy ghost fading right. in and out effect. It reminded me a lot of when he's kind of getting blurry vision problems in this oh, film. Yeah. That I wanted to shout out. That was a fun recurring thing uh, in this film. 
which uh, I forget if it happened in this scene, but I really loved the scene. One of my, that was really akin to sort of um, the, probably the scene that reminded me most of cat people as far as just being in a space and just feeling totally unnerved was when he's in that hallway getting into his hotel room. Yeah. The the light the lighting is it's surreal. It's just creepy the way the lights are shitting out from each doorway like yet yeah, all the doors are closed so I I don't know exactly what was going on. And like a sound effect starts playing in building and you think he's going to see something but it's just his two other uh doctor buddies or whoever they are open the door and kind of break the se- spell so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh but just him in that hallway alone like that that was probably the most affecting scene for me in a way where I just sort of felt that uh, that supernatural presence and felt unnerved. It was really good. Yeah, I I think that throughout this movie, that's one of the the sort of standout black and white compositional imagery scenes. But there's I'd say there's probably five or six really, really beautiful like composition shots like really taking advantage of black and white like the contrast sort of shadow play stuff it there's a sequence when he has broken into carswell's house and is coming down the stairs and man there are some shots throughout that whole sequence that are so beautiful um also the creepiness of the hand following him but the person's not there when you cut to the reverse i love that i was just gonna say that was another great sequence yeah we just said he's breaking into the house and coming down the stairs and yeah that hand following (laughs) him and then you you immediately cut to the reverse and there's just no one there and you go what huh I know what? it's such a cool thing. Oh, it so oh, it was great, and then that just led us into the cat attack scene. Oh which my god, I the cat attack is loved no so, joke, so hilarious, lo- and loved awesome. it so much. The cat like <laughs> cross dissolve transforms into a leopard and starts attacking him. <laughs> Nothing pleases me more than a pantomime like animal attack with a stuffed animal like you know what i mean yeah that was so funny to watch that was in that other british way more obvious in that other british movie we watched what was that legend of hell house legend there you go yeah had a cat attack uh but this one it was great i mean the attack was just long enough to be fun they didn't overdo it in showing it or anything they it was kept all very much in the dark which is yeah. really smart but the, it was so great because then we do have uh carlisle carswell enter afterwards and just do the whole thing like oh was my cat bothering you like you know like (laughs) he knows i love how how kind of just he's not hiding anything yeah he's literally the whole time just being like yeah i'm a magician and a sorcerer and i've cursed you and like i cursed this room in case anybody like you decide to break into my house oh did you meet up with my curse right how'd it go Right. It, it's conflict can be so much more interesting. I mean, it's a, just a different thing, but conflict's really interesting and works so well for this kind of horror movie when the the antagonist protagonist relationship isn't based on killing one another. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, like that's not <laughs> that's not what Doctor John Holden is trying to. He doesn't want to kill this guy. <laughs> you know, right. and same with Carswell. He's not deliberately going out and killing anyone. It's just hey, there's this curse on you and you're going to be dead in two days. Sorry, bud. You know, it's... 
This but, curse that I put on you. Yeah, but it, until <laughs> then, like, what you know, we can talk He's about like, it. Don't meddle. Yeah. Why you got to be a meddler? Yeah, no, it's fun because then that gives you juicy scenes like that throughout. And I will say that that I, it sounds like that's something you'll get to for what didn't work. But for me, there is I can say <laughs> what worked is something that often doesn't work in a lot of these films, which is just the sort of getting stuck in these dialogue people talking in room scenes. Like I never, like I always was always enjoying those scenes just as much for the pacing and just like that, um, that little bit of romantic tension between the two leads. It was just, it was just funny. <laughs> like, well, it was great. Cause she was just like, uh, not right now, buddy. Thanks. You know, and, <laughs> yeah. But, but like, just that feel of like, it, it was just so much fun of them, uh, of Joanna and Holden, uh, Harrington and Holden, uh, when they, when he goes over for dinner at her place. And it's just like her house is so cool. There's a big thunderstorm outside. She's getting freaked out by it. So she's like, oh, let me take my candelabra and let us go to the den. It's a little more comfortable yeah. there. He's like reading passages from the creepy old book. Uh, it's just the, the fire's already going when they walk in. He like, you know, he when he's reading from the book, he he turns to use the fire to light it. It's just all these little touches just make it oh, homey yeah, and I cool. Did, I and like that. Yeah. It makes it feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just with them and on part of this this advent, this little adventure of theirs, figuring it out. I, I really loved all those scenes in between too. Yeah, like it's that. Good. One. What else? <laughs> the ending. <laughs> the ending when the demon comes back. Of course, this is great. It was great. God, Tim, it looked so cool when he's like, we see him on the uh, the demon on the other side of the train, like pick him up, and it's yeah, like that blew my mind. <laughs> It's like I guess it's it's like a little doll person he's holding or something is the effect, but it looks so good. Just the way he's like whipping around and like he like claws into him and gnaws into him, and it's obscured by the train roaring by. Yeah, I loved all of that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And then the movie's over. It's just like all right. Yeah, roll the the credits. But no, it 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 eases out though. At the same time, you know the dead bodies over there. And then they, <laughs> yeah. they make like, the delib- must have been hit by the train. Though they make the deliberate decision, decision, um, Harrington Holden to not go over and look at it. So meanwhile, mm-hmm. when you have the sort of the the train people, the, the people working there run up to the body and say, it's like smoking. It's like, <laughs> what just happened to this? But they're <laughs> like, oh, that, well, obviously, the, how did the train do this? You know, he got hit by the train kind of thing. And we know that isn't what happened. And, you know, one of the other guys was like, no, I saw him running alongside the train. He didn't come near it. So it just perfectly sets up that whole dichotomy of, like, if something seems a little off or inexplicable, are you going to try to force the most obvious answer onto it? Or are you at least going to leave it open to just say, this is something weirder here. We have to at least accept that. Why can't we just say we don't know? And then come full circle, we do get a little character you know arc at the end finally <laughs> holden dr jod gives us a little little leeway he's not he's he's we, we know a little from a little earlier like he's pretty on board with believing this stuff after the dude jumps out the window and all that which we'll talk about too but just to end the the movie on that theme of he says um 
he says, oh, it's it's better off not knowing, right? It's not important to know. I'd rather not know right now. That's that's the note they leave it on where they don't need to go over and examine the body. They can just... Yeah, they ba- <laughs> the two of them basically like like step backwards out of the room. They're like, yeah, we're just going <laughs> to yeah. back right out of this. <laughs> and why not? They can now. They can now try. I don't know. See if they can make it work or whatever. They got other things they can do now. <laughs> he can. He can continue to awkwardly try to kiss her at like not the like appropriate point of time. In time. Hey, he he was going to be dead in two days. I was feeling him every <laughs> step of the way. God, he he was he's like, well, if I'm gonna die. <laughs> that yeah, well, <laughs> that was fun when he um. It was just so tricky the way he did hand off the the rune written down to to Carswell in the jacket, and that was really fun too. Yeah, what leading up to Carswell's death, we just explained how Carswell is the one in the train car freaking out, and we see he's lost the upper hand once they've found him. Mm-hmm. It was just fun seeing that reversal. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. I um, love that moment where <laughs> such a such a like ooh got him. Yeah, Ooh, got him. <laughs> and he goes running after the little piece of paper as it flies down the train. Oh, right. All the stuff with the paper flying in this. So that looked great. Yeah. Every time the paper was flitting around, man. Mm-hmm. It was so good. When it almost goes into the fire earlier. <laughs> yeah. I kept uh, saying like, I kept yelling at the, at the screen. Because <laughs> I was like, just go grab it. Just go yeah. grab it. Stop. It's going to go in the fire. Go get it. And they're like very casual. Oh, well, oh, it's just a draft. I was like, shut the fuck up and grab it. It's almost in the fire. You don't know what you're messing with. Come right. on, man. Um, uh, yeah, so another seat I just alluded to, dude jumping out the window. That dude mm-hmm. was Rand Hobart, who's the one who technically survived the passing of the rune is who he is. He's involved in some forget exactly specifically it was something like that that's wait isn't wait isn't he the the dude who went crazy yeah what the what exactly is his deal because because remember holden goes and visits that guy's family right but why why did he go crazy um i think i mean it was it was being given the rune, I thought. Because he was accused of the murder. Yeah. But but not convicted of the murder because he went mad. And then the cop uh, Here the we beginning go. is... Under hypnosis, the suspect Hobart reveals to Holden that he was, quote, chosen to die by having a runic parchment passed to him, but avoided death by passing it back to the person who had given it to him. Who who was who? Was when Holden shows... Uh, Carswell? Um, yeah, Carswell, yeah. Okay, so he foiled Carswell, and then what? Carswell cursed him and made him go crazy. I guess so. Whatever. Um, <laughs> but it was so great how how you know he freaked out when he saw the rune. He didn't want to be near it. Like after finally getting rid of it, <laughs> that that was the thing to bust him out of his catatonic state. Right, and right. that it that just to see that flip of him t- going all out crazy screaming and then running and jumping after out of a window after like a first try, you know, the window, like the first break didn't quite do it. The second <laughs> one, he makes it through. Um, that was great. That dude's performance was great. And yeah. um, what was his name? Brian Wild. Uh, and then the scene with his family too was great. 
Because yeah. like just to have that, have our, our Dr. Holden character who just doesn't believe in any of this step into a room and have to be really, you know, have to be really respectful towards these people because he knows the situation that the, that the son is in. All of a sudden being the, the minority in people who believe in all this stuff and having, having to be respectful of it in them. Well, it's very much, not that I know much about this because I, I, I tried to go down these uh, rabbit holes a little bit, but there's, you know, kind of a tradition in European pagan folklore, largely among like farmers of this thing that's sort of considered like right hand path magic, where it's it's this folk magic, right? Runes and and symbols and and stuff. And it's it, you know, it was classified as evil and whatever, but just because it was the pre-existing way that people kind of or belief system that people had that wasn't Christianity, you know, and so it got turned into this thing of like, oh, that's that's Satan worship. It's evil. It's like not really. It's just this other version of mysticism or whatever. And I think it's really cool. There's something about it that has always kind of like felt fascinating and interesting to me it's very it became very prominent in the um in my region of upstate new york um in the like early 1800s it was a huge boon of this like right hand path magic sort of folklore magic stuff that was all over the place and people like john smith you know the guy who started the mormons he's from my where i grew up basically the area like there were all of these people around there that were hawking these sort of cons and taking advantage of like poor farmers who had this belief system and like swindling them. And so there's something historically just really fascinating to me about that whole world in that time period. So and obviously this doesn't take place in that time period, but that family, the the Hobart family is so much a kind of callback to that, you know that era and and that like demographic of people and how the they they sort of sit outside of modern contemporary belief and it's cool i just think there's something really fun about it yeah it's also kind of in that movie with um boris karloff the one that's uh remember the family of farmers the the that he he um wait one that we, we didn't watch it black sabbath Oh, that we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he goes back to the family and there's this sort of like farm kind of mysticism, lore, magic thing going on. It's that stuff. There's some something about all of that that I've always found really cool. And then every time we run into it, I'm like, damn, that's fun. It's exciting. Yeah, this connection to the past via people of the present. Yeah. Yeah, and how you see that in... um. I mean, Hexen is just all that embodied. <laughs> Dude, so good. <laughs> right. Give me a uh, break. <laughs> great. Uh, you know what? I think that's, uh, that's about it for my list. I mean, I, I really did just love it all. Just, yeah. a- again, like actors I thought were great. All, all of them were really great with us. And I, I, yeah, Carswell, they were, though they were all great, I think Carswell just uh, was given the most to do, was the juiciest role in a way. No so. Absolutely. It's fun to see uh, Niall McInnes be able to really uh, chew that up. It's great. Yep. 
Cool. All right. Well, then with that, we shall move on to our next section. What did not work? She's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? <laughs> I want to say one thing about those scenes that I mentioned, the the sort of mystery scenes. I think it, it's fine. Like, it, it doesn't hurt the movie but there's a part of me that felt like they could have been those scenes could have been placed in slightly different sections of the movie that would have made the mystery unfold I think in a slightly more exciting way for me like when we learn that the demon is like you know that people who have seen or the one witness who saw the demon had drawn a picture of it and then the cop is sort of like yeah, it looks like very similar to this demon that's yeah, like we've, you know, in all these different cultures, it's the same sort of demon. I kind of feel like I want that scene, that like education scene to be later in the movie. You know, where it's like it's a discovery rather than an exposition. Mm-hmm. And this one, this movie makes it more of an exposition of like, OK, well, you've seen it. So let's explain it and then we can carry on with the story. But I was like, damn, I think I felt like that should have come later. And conversely, I kind of felt like the um, the hypnosis scene, the, the Rand Hobart scene, could have come earlier. Maybe not the reveal of the rune part, but like the scene itself. You're right. As far as a ho- hypnosis scene, it's much more of a sort of leaves it to the imagination is like hinting at this bigger something still yeah. questioning whether it's real or not. And now, then, if we um, had, like, let's just say for hypotheticals sake that you had gotten the hypnosis scene with all the people there and everything and whatever, whatever, minus the ending of that scene. And it, and it was a way to, for Holden and, and Joanna to sort of get further along down their quest. And then, once they realize something else, whatever that might be, maybe it's the the actual the runes and put it together that Hobart had the runes at one point. They go back to him and he's still catatonic and then you can have him see it and jump out the window. Right. Like I feel like you could have split that scene into two at two very specific parts of the movie. Essentially, it would be I think if you were using kind of a standard structural thing, it would be like the midpoint and then the turn into the third act would be the actual death something to that effect it just felt like i was like ooh, maybe this would be better this other way but maybe not um and then what was the other one i mentioned um the drawings no the or the there were three scenes that i mentioned really added to the mystery part of things Oh, God, I don't know. Whatever. doesn't matter. But those two scenes stuck out for me for sure about, like, maybe it reorganizing the structure would have made it more exciting. And and I think my the point being is that there were, there were chunks in the middle that, like I had mentioned, that I felt like we were talking the plot instead of actually having a scene. And I think reorganizing those other scenes might have helped with that. But who knows? 
Got what it. didn't work for you, Ryan? Uh, just <laughs> nothing really. <laughs> Did it see? It really bothered me how kind of like side charactery Joanna felt. I didn't feel that way when watching it. Really, I, was, I just felt like she was this sort of like something about when they when they first the first interaction they have where i forget i forget exactly what what it is but it it gave the sense where it was like he's kind of like trying to step in and say this is what we're going to do and she sort of is like a, a yeah but no and then it yeah. it felt like it felt like i don't know it felt like she was the one kind of leading the way and he was the one just kind of like playing detective the whole time and i like that yeah, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just sort like, of the... Like, while, of course, still under the conform- visual conformity of, yeah, he's, like, grabbing her and crap Ex- like that, that that she has to put things, up with. Like, like in the in the wind scene, before the wind picks up, they just, as a writing sort of tool, they just get her out of there. You know, like, the mom comes up and is like, do you like ice cream? And she's like, yeah, I love it. And she's like, well, come with me and we'll give you a treat. And then and then she's just, that's their device to get Holden and Carswell together. Alone. Right, the men together, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that it's things like that coupled with Holden being such a sourpuss, but then always sort of trying to angle in to, like, be like, you're really pretty, or, hey, maybe I should give you a kiss, or, hey, just... That dynamic, I know it's of the era, but that dynamic is just so bleh to me that when I see it, I start to really disengage. I kind of just go, oh, man, I don't want to. Yeah. I just so I think that's my biggest. I mean, honestly, that is my biggest issue with this movie, without a doubt. If that dynamic was different or if she had been the lead, like if she had been the holding character. I would have been much more on board. Yeah, what is this? So be it. Sixty-five years old, <laughs> something like <laughs> I know, that. Exactly. What do you expect? I I think I have enough. Like, like I just see that for like I don't feel like I'm getting caught up in that mm. worldview when I'm watching it. So I just see him as just this lame behind the times, you know, conforming right, right. to the times kind of guy. And like, I the him not being likable is it's it's. It makes it all that much more fun for me to sort of like wait for that turn to happen when he does freak out or you know he does yeah start to believe. Okay, um, okay. So because because you point, you sort though. of tie that association together, like his being a mad person is also tied to his skepticism. You know, right, right, yes. But here's the thing: I I need you to to make me feel better about his character arc. Because there's a part of me that feels like he doesn't come around to, like, buying in until after he's killed Carswell. And I feel like that's... Like, if he's such a skeptic and a non-believer, then passing the runes back to Carswell... It feels... No, I thought it happened hmm. when I thought it happened with the dude under hypnosis. Like I felt by the end okay. of that scene, like after he's jumped out the window and we go back to him, I'm like, okay, now he's now he's on board. 
Yeah, I guess I just didn't feel it really like I didn't feel like a a big like click in mm-hmm. kind of like, you know what it is? It's that, and this is just because it's a it's the style of the era that you didn't really have this type of scene in in back then. But it's missing a scene, an introspective scene with him by himself. It just doesn't have it where he kind of goes, holy crap. Yeah, I've been wrong. You know, and he doesn't need to say this, but where where we get to see him question everything for real on his own. Yeah. And I think if you had that, then I'd kind of be more like on board, uh, on board, everybody all aboard the train so that he can slip Carswell the thing. And then we feel a little bit better. But having said all that, he slips it to Carswell and just that's like sealing his his fate, right? Like, does he not think that he's going to get killed then? He's got to get it off of him, I guess. Yeah, after I said earlier how, you know, it's fun, a relationship where it's not about killing one another, but he kind of does do that to him at the end. But I mean, it's a, it's a little like <laughs> it's for me, it's like the only way I can. I don't know. I could almost feel like justified in like doing that if it because it's. When you think of it, when you would you tie when you disconnect it from the death that the, they're going to die itself, then it's a curse. And you just mm-hmm. think of it in those terms, like he put a curse on me. And well, now the, the only way to get it off is to give it to someone else. So who's Correct. the the least reprehensible person I could give it to? No, the, the one most who gave it to me. No, no, no. The least rep, like, like as if it's most justifiable. Like, if someone has to die from this curse, it should be whoever see, made it in the first place. So here's I, okay. So this makes it clear to me. Here's what I think is missing from this movie: not just the introspective thing. Here, you can couple it. You need to see him have this introspective moment, and then tie it back to his friend was murdered. If we don't really get that tie back around where he gets to go, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to save myself? And like we know, like I feel like you need to hammer home that he's he's it's revenge rather than just just getting the curse off of him. Well, I think that that's a different movie. And actually, that could be maybe what would really help it and um especially for like how you were seeing it but I, I could get on board with this too you just called him his friend but i think the guy who died the professor at the beginning it was just like an associate or like someone he was going to learn that you know or is just gonna get speak on yeah, beha- speak true. with i mean it's a friends. colleague enough right like colleague but, but at, you, at minimum there wasn't any sense of like sadness or remorse, anything like that, aside from just that initial surprise that he had died. So you do yeah. make them friends, and I felt like that could have really helped just give him a little something that maybe he could have sympathized with. Right, because at its core, this movie is a who and how did right. doc, uh, Professor Harrington die? Well, yeah, to make it um, a who killed my friend I was about to see versus who uh, killed this guy I was about to meet. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, and that's why I say, if you made Joanna the lead, or if you had her driving that narrative more, you would have this, because she's his 
niece. Like I mean, she's yeah. related to. I won't disagree with you there. That'd be a better movie if it was just told from her point of view, for <laughs> sure. But as to, to go all this stuff, like I, I agree with all of these things you're saying. That like, yeah, I could see that working better. I, I would have liked that. But nothing like didn't. <laughs> there, nothing was as far as not working for me. You know. Sure. Gotcha. Well, this is like, as you said in the beginning, we dismember and then we sew it back together, kind of Frankenstein yeah. style. So that's my attempt at sewing it back together with a different limb or two. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> um, but yeah, other than that, I think it's it's super solid. You know, like, it's not bad. It's it's good in spite of that stuff that I think I... It's a taste thing in a lot of ways, really. Well, I think it's great despite well, those you things. Go. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah. All right. Next last section, Things of Note. Things of Note! (laughs) This should be interesting. I have one. (gasps) What's your thing of note, Tim? (laughs) Dr. Carswell who, as we said, actually his name is Patrick Nile McGinnis, but I guess his professional name was Nile McGinnis. He played Zeus in Jason and the Argonauts. And I, that movie was so big, man, for my childhood. Come on. No, I loved it. I watched it all the time as a kid. I love that movie so much. I always re- I remember buying the DVD at Suncoast Video. I watched it wow. over and over. I loved it. <laughs> I was like, I know this dude. I know him. I can't figure out where I know him from. And then I saw it and I was like, that's the ticket. He's Zeus. <laughs> Zeus. Awesome. What else you got? Uh, it was interesting. I did go down the... Uh, there's a whole lot of interviews and special features on the disc two of the edition that we rented I was watching. And it was interesting how there was mixed stuff. Like, there wasn't a clear record Turnier was on about whether... How for and how against he was against, you know, showing the demon. Mm. So that wasn't clear. But the production designer, Ken Adams, was certainly not crazy about showing the demon. Nor was our star, Dana Andrews, happy about showing the demon. Um, This was all done sort of after... It wasn't in the original script and was done after the fact by producer Hal Chester. (laughs) It was added on after. Interesting. And... uh, it was funny, yeah, how hearing, like, I just watched or listened to this little interview portion snippet with Dana Andrews, like, in the 70s, talking about this film. And it was funny because, like, the, the interviewer was clearly a huge fan of the movie. Hmm. Um, and Dana Andrews, <laughs> he called Hal Chester, quote, a little schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> And it was great because his voice was like just like him. He's like, ah, Al was a little schmuck. He's telling oh Turnier how to direct and da, 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 you know. So so he said stuff like Hal Chester was coming and not not only was he mad at him and thought he ruined the movie for adding the monster, but on set he said he didn't like how Hal Chester felt like he was like telling Tournier kind of like what to do or how to direct and stuff like that. And uh, an example of that 
that was in the Wikipedia was that uh, uh, one argument was about the wind scene. Turnier tried to convince Chester to, to replace two electric fans with two airplane engines. When Chester hesitated, star Dana Andrews threatened to leave the picture if Chester did not let, quote, the director direct the picture. So wow. it was um, Hal Chester. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, the film was adapted from the M.R. James story, Casting the Runes. Hmm. Now, M.R. James, from 1911. So oh, cool. we're talking about, you know, this was, this was updated for modern day 1957, you know, from a 1911 story. But M.R. James... It's kind of known as a as a ghost writer, not in the term ghost writer, <laughs> as in write about the paranormal supernatural. He wrote no for writing ghost stories, <laughs> um, and uh, it was kind of fun because he we it, apparently how this story started or where it was first heard was uh, M. R. James went to and had a relationship with uh, King's College in Cambridge. And he was in some kind of club there that would get together like uh, close to Christmas and they'd all tell each other ghost stories and stuff. So mm. this was one of the stories that was a favorite that he'd tell and it was called Casting the Runes. Then it appeared in print in 1911. That's very, um, very much like the movie we watched about Mary Shelley. Yeah. What the hell was that one called? Man, we're all Gothic. About not... Oh, yeah, gothic. Yeah, it's got that vibe. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's fun to hear kind of what their, what the filmmaker's relationship to the paranormal is and whatnot and see if and how that informs a work. Like I think we mentioned on the show before, uh, God, what's his name? <laughs> I'm not remembering things. Who's the Haunting of Hill House dude? Gerald's uh, made all those things. Made, um, the, oh, God. The, you know, the, um, the, the Shining sequel. Mike Flanagan. Yeah, Flanagan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's he, like, I don't really believe in any of this. Yeah, it comes down hard like that. Jacques Tourneur. He said to have been more open and believed in the supernatural. The specifics that this person was alluding to, he wasn't sure about, except for he knew Tourneur. Tourneur. <laughs> he uh, was into, believed in the idea that there was just more to the material world then we're able to see that. Yeah. So in his films, cat people, like what he was really interested in and what you see in this film too, he was always interested in sort of presenting another layer of reality or like where re- different realities intersect kind of thing. So it's fun to see someone who at least is open to that than putting that vision. And that's, that's really where his filmmaking approach too was, where rather than treating these things like, oh, we're making a, a motion picture here and are going to show these monsters. Uh, he's, he's always taking the approach of how would this thing look in real life or how would this story, if it was true, you know, play out in real life? So like a cat woman, you know, <laughs> cursed, you know, like that, presenting that in a realistic way, you know, as that was his approach, which I thought was I mean, was he's fun. done some really amazing films. Cat People, City Under the Sea. Uh, let's see. He did else? a whole bunch of shorts that are apparently are cool too. He did um, I Walked with a Zombie. This one, obviously, Night of the Demon. Um, any of these stick out? 
Yeah, but all the, I mean, some really good stuff. It's cool. I had a question for you, Tim, when we were talking about how you loved the the sort of, you know, talking about upper state New York and the, that connection. I mentioned that I would like, yeah, people that are a connection to an old time. Yeah. So this was made in 57 based on a story published in 1911. And it's cool to think that you could have this subset of a certain kind of ilk represented by this family he goes and see serving that function 50 years apart, right, essentially. Now, mm-hmm. do you think, do you, <laughs> will we always be able to like, like you know, give or take next hundred, next couple hundred years, do you think we'll always be able to find people who feel like a link to a far, far past? Or is that past only becoming more recent? Is that past only becoming more recent? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning like, these people who give off connection to witches 1800s vibe that like oh, the, oh, that oh, oh. that family in 57 was still representing do you think, think like those people still exist or I will think still it exist will always exist to some degree mm-hmm. and it you know it's it's a form of traditionalism right like humans and families in particular are, you know, they're the ones who are carrying on the traditions and passing them on. And I think that two things. One, that way of it continuing on will always exist to some degree. But also we, I think culturally, we keep looping back around. You know, you see the sort of uh, undulation of fascination with that type of stuff. And so that, you know, that plays a role in continuing on. Maybe it's like how, you know, for me, for example, like I was raised kind of Christian, <laughs> loose, loose Christian, um, you know, because my dad's a scientist. So he was not, a, he was like, whatever about it. And my my mom was sort of more about the community aspect of going to church and less about the dogmatic aspect of it. But I, you know, I now am totally way more interested in things like paganism, Satanism, and like the implication of that in a modern time because there are people who theologically can look at stuff from a broader stance and then sort of pull from those things and come to a new, a totally new way of looking at I guess if you want to call it spirituality, but like, or, or just how to live as a human being, like how to treat other people. And, and I think it's just, to me, it's, it's more fascinating. The more you learn about the various ways historically that people have looked at religion or mysticism or explaining the things that we don't know how to explain any of the above, we come to other conclusions or new conclusions, or some amalgamation of conclusions. And so, depending on how into it certain people are, that can create a new pathway for a traditionalism that starts up. So I think that there are there's sort of cycles of it that can and do exist, and the more we have interconnectivity and access to, uh, you know, knowledge about 
these things in a historical context, the more we'll form new ideas that will be related to some of that stuff that will carry on. And I think, you know, it all like I don't in other words, I don't think we're going to come to a time where everybody just goes, yeah, remember back like 300 years ago when people like believed in religion? Like, I don't think we're ever going to become a people of complete atheist, atheist? Yeah, atheist like cynicism. I just don't think so. I think there's always going to be a a desire to have a sort of some form of mystical lore that's based in tradition that people can attach to. How about, uh, yeah. That's Was cool. that a lot of word salad that I just spewed out? No, I was Or did that make you. sense? But tell me if this makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> to, I want to put a different little spin on uh, what I, what I want to ask here. It's, you know, taking like, even though it plays a part in it, taking religion and belief out of it, just as far as a sense that a people give you like like if you were to be in a time machine get dropped off into 1860 into a family and like just like they all looked at you you know there's a word that's very much in vogue but i think for a reason there's a vibe there <laughs> right and I, what i'm wondering is if uh, uh, about I'm wondering about the continuation, the through line of said vibes, and what what helps them carry forth and continue, and what could possibly break them. Could that vibe be recaptured by like what you're saying? Some you know people just sort of coming back to a certain perspective that those people have and looking like them, and that's true to the source of the vibe, or does it have to be or is it a combination of like a direct ancestral continuation of, mm. of or a cultural, you know, heritage or something like that, you know? Hmm. That's an interesting. <laughs> I Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I do think that like, hmm, how do I put this? I think that what would you call it? Let's just call it. Um, I don't want to just call it mysticism, but like a, a way of viewing the world that is sort of transcending just the, like I can, the certitude of what's in front of us. I think that will always exist. So the, that vibe will always exist. What we don't know is how prevalent the version of that vibe will be. Because it could be really... Pre it, we could tip into the prevalence of that vibe being like super malevolent, like super, super ignorant and like shitty. Or that vibe could tip into us becoming way more connected with things that I think you and I relate to, which is like this, this feeling of a bigger presence or a, you know, a bigger meaning when we be, when we get closer in contact with the natural world. And so 
I mean, more likely than not, we'll get a spectrum of that. We have a spectrum of that. I think it's, it speaks to, I guess, tie it all together, the power of film that we can just put all these certain elements up on screen. Actors can channel a certain something. And then we're there. We're there back in like, you know, I, I'm just thinking of hmm. inherent vice and once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, putting us back in those times. It's one of my favorite parts in inherent vice is they're walking to a party and the narrator says something about there was a certain kind of atmosphere or a distinct mm-hmm. atmosphere and you feel it. And it's incredible. But I guess, yeah, but I guess pertaining to my question, that is it like, let's say you were just to throw a party that was like a 1970-themed party where like no, you know, no, no technology allowed that's from after that year. Everyone has the right clothing kind of thing. Music's only, you know, can't be made after that. House, you know, down to every single detail. Is there still... Is that the 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 strength of that vibe and energy and feel? Is that best only going to then be captured in a picture or a film that is then, you know, further framing it? Or could you actually be at that party and, uh, and, and not have any kind of sense of artifice holding it back? I think the the second one is is possible because I I went to that party, yeah. <laughs> Around June, I think it was. It was like the six months from October. So whatever that would have been. November, December, January, February, March, April. So it was like late April. And it was a like anti-Halloween party. And it was also a 70s party. So it was so weird. And it was also in the Hollywood Hills. Which is like, this is like the only time I've ever been to like a quote unquote Hollywood Hills party. But it was in a house that was probably built in like 1960 on sort of the hillside with like the stilts underneath, like that kind of vibe. Uh, The only music being played was being played by bands like rock bands that were just covering 70s music. The DJ was just playing, you know, like when the bands weren't playing, was just playing 70s music. There was like a lava lamp, psychedelic projector, like the whole the whole thing. Everybody's dressed up in 70s clothing, but also with Halloween costumes. And like a <laughs> bunch of people were doing acid. Uh, like there was it was it was just wild i wrote i like the friend that i met there rode up on a vespa and a like a a, a, what do you call it like a her her motorcycle helmet was like sequined like shiny like a almost like a disco ball i was like i don't know where i am i was like this is literally a time capsule i've just stepped into another time so you felt it all coming through authentically so much. Everybody there was like that vibe. And they weren't – it wasn't a put-on. Like that's who these people were. Like they're the Hollywood rock rock and roll like sort of people that are living that life. Yeah, you think 
that everyone maybe does have a predilection or not at all to like, maybe, you know, people are, can also be truly presentist too. But like a lot of times people do just have a fascination with a certain period of history. And you yeah. wonder if like, let's say this casting in a, whether a movie or a party, that means they especially like look at home in that era too, you know, in Absolutely. a way. No, I think there's something to be said about that. Like we know people who were like that person is like pers- is like 1945 personified. And you're saying you get enough of those people together in the same room, then yeah. that just amplifies it. And all of a sudden, oh, I have stepped in 1945. Yes, yes, yes. I think I think that is something that can exist. I want to go to all those parties, man. <laughs> I'd love to go back to one of those. It was so random. It was like such a, I don't know. My my friend who no longer lives in L.A. was like, oh, hey, do you want to go to this weird party tonight? I was like, sure. Always say yes if someone asks you that. Yep. <laughs> um, All right, you want to hear my, uh, my, my wonderful Stonehenge story? Yes. All right, to wrap it up so that I, we wrap I, it all back around. And then I have one little last thing of note. So. Perfect. All right, so my grandfather, Bob, we called him Wally. So Wally was, uh, you know, he enlisted into World War II, um, and his, uh, I think it was his, because he was going into Michigan Institute of Technology, so the, the MIT up there. And a, a professor there basically, I think it was a professor, basically had a kind of an inside line on how we were going to uh, approach the war and he said you guys we have to delay you guys or or else if if our assumptions are right you will you will just be in that first wave when we invade europe which ended up being true and so they you know and so a bunch of young guys who enlisted were in that first wave and and like hit the beaches of normandy and got mowed down right like Thousands of of soldiers died. So this guy prevented my or like suggested to my grandfather and the the other guys his age in that town to wait like two weeks or something like that, which delayed their enlistment by like a month, which put them behind when they were sent over to England to train. And so they were trying to catch up on training. So they would go out in the middle of the night. My grandfather was an engineer and explosives guy. And they would take tanks and just like barrel around the countryside to like try and get familiar with driving these tanks around. He says one night (laughs) they're just plowing around the the hills, the country hills in the middle of the night. So like it's it's pretty much pitch black. They're like we need to know how to do this. And off in the distance up on a hill that they're heading toward, they see a, a, a light. And so they're just they go toward it to see what it is. And it's this old dude, old British, you know, codger holding a lantern. And he's in the and they're, they're no joke. They are in the middle of just nowhere countryside. And the guy's flipping out, he's waving his hands around, waving the lantern around, getting all freaked out, it's like screaming for them to stop. And they stop and they're like, what is going, like, what are you doing? Who are you? What are you doing out here? Huh? Like a weird, you know, phantom. 
And the guy's like, you can't go that way. There, there is an incredibly important, like, um, monument that me, like, that I'm supposed to look after, and you're you're going to just run over it. It's like right over this rise. And they're, you know, it's pitch black, and they're like, what? Like what? They didn't know what they're what he's talking about. And he's like, Stonehenge, Stonehenge is right there. And they're like, we don't know what Stonehenge is. Nobody ever heard of Stonehenge. It wasn't like a known thing, but they were like. 30 yards away from literally running their tank into Stonehenge. (laughs) (laughs) And so like when I was a little kid, I noticed that my, I had never heard this story until I was like probably like 25 or something like that. So my whole life, I just sort of happened to notice that my grandfather had a lot of Stonehenge paraphernalia. Like little toy Stonehenges and like postcards and posters and like books on it and all this stuff. After the fact, he became kind of like obsessed because he's like, I almost ran stone, like knocked Stonehenge over with a tank. (laughs) You know, I think my favorite part of that is that the guy was justified in guarding it. Like, (laughs) I mean, some, so this means that back then, some dude. Yeah. Stood out there in the middle of the night on a nightly basis. Can, yeah. Can you imagine like for you standing there for three years and then the night comes a tank almost drives it over and you're glad <laughs> you're there. Stop, like how insane is that? Anyways, that's my Stonehenge story. There you go. Great. Yeah. No. And it was interesting when I, I got the context that for this film, starting with Stonehenge, like they put in the context, of, oh, when this came out, people like didn't know what it was. So now when right. we look at it, it's it's easier. Or, I mean, we more default just have the ones like, oh, Stonehenge, we think we think tourist attraction versus the air of mystery it actually holds, which was still very much there. Um, yeah when this film was released. So the last little thing I had was one on our favorite little touches, Tim, the hand following him mm. inside. How cool was that? Again, so just what a great little touch of, was it supernatural? Is it what was going on there? Who was that? I don't know. So apparently Turnier, he uh, had very specific casting in mind for, or he uh, spent a lot of time casting those hands wasn't anyone oh, else? Wow, really? Wasn't anyone else who was in the film in any other way? But he ended up casting a man who was about to die. Whoa! Yeah, that's cool and weird and freaky. Yep. There you go. Sweet. <laughs> Take that for as you will. We'll all be damned. Great. All right, Tim. Well, do you have any recommendations for us this week? Yes, and I think it's it's important for me to clarify that this recommendation is a, I think it's an Irish film. Um, it's really good, but I was under the impression that it was pronounced Calibre for because you know I see B R E on the end of a word, and I just think it's it's fancier. Um, it's just caliber. <laughs> it's just caliber. It's the British spelling of caliber which makes a lot of sense because of what's in the film but i will not tell you you just need to watch the movie if you know what's going to happen it 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 really undercuts the effectiveness of the movie but it's on netflix watch it it's super messed up and super like super thriller suspenseful awesome awesome movie 
Caliber. Cool. Caliber. Great. Spelled C A L I B R E. <laughs> um, I haven't been watching so so much. Just been working a gig here, keeping busy. But throughout it all, these last couple weeks, when I can, I've just become kind of obsessed listening to the Mamas and the Papas over oh, and nice. over. They have like five albums, I think. Um, and I've just been cycling through those. And they're they're great. And it's fun hearing like what they do to make an album versus just sort of their top hits. Mm-hmm. It was it was coming yeah. at me from like different areas where, you know, a couple of their songs are in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I love. Um, our friend suggested I watch... Uh, that um, God, what was that movie? It was like a documentary on um, Echo in the Canyon. And they're you oh, know yeah, featured yeah. in that, and then um, God, they popped up from one other one other avenue too. Had sort of popped up in my periphery, but anyway, yeah, I've just been listening to them. They're great, so I'm gonna recommend a band. <laughs> they're only cool. like active for a few years <laughs> too. Check them out if you haven't. The Mamas and the Papas. Oh, Chunking Express. I just watched that, and it's great. And, you know, as California Dreamin' featured throughout. There's a fun little, if you do, maybe this, I don't want to make this the recommended Chin Bond YouTube. There's like an era 2000 kind of VH1-style documentary called The Mapas, Mamas and the Papas Straight Shooter. You can watch, and there's a great story in there about um, how they became the Mamas and the Papas. And uh, it was quite the adventure that they went on leading up to their formation. So it's nice. fun learning about them all too. Give them a listen. Give them a spin. Well, cool, dude. Great. Believe I'm it's pretty your- sure it's my turn. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see what you pull here, as always. Diving right in. I'm pulling out this one right here. This one right here in my hand, which is called At Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul. Cool. Sixty-four. Great. Sweet. I was actually just looking when I was looking at what we still have in the hat and I this was one of the ones I was like I looked up today and like what if we watch this next? Well, you're in luck. We're going to watch it next. Features the first appearance of Coffin Joe of the Coffin Joe trilogy. Brazil's her first horror film. Oh. Okay. <laughs> cool. From 1964. Great. Well, Sweet. until then, you can find us wherever you found us. Our big ask is that you tell a friend if you think they'd enjoy being here, too. I'm Ryan McDuffie. This year with me was Tim Aslan. <laughs> and we acknowledge and thank our mixer and master, Brendan Welch. Thanks, Brendan. Great. Well, I think that's it. So in closing, we hope that you don't die in, at 10 p.m. in two days at the hands of a demon. <laughs> either way thanks for listening that's right and we will see you next time if you don't die goodbye